what do you think life is all about? I'm going to go deep end on this and I'm going to give you two extreme examples of how we often live our lives that actually don't make any sense. The first example is the sort of person who says, do you know what? You only live once. Let's make the most of it. If I don't get it now, it ain't never happening. I'm never getting it. And life is an ultimate thing for you. The other extreme, the second example, is of someone who quite down the other end of the scale says life is simply to be endured. That anything good that we can ever have is going to come after, in the afterlife. That for some reason, for whatever mysterious purpose God has, that we just exist now to endure, to patiently wait for what he has got planned. Actually, life is just about keeping our nose clean to make sure that we're still about to enjoy that when it comes. I think both of those are utter nonsense. Sorry to be so blunt. Um, The real purpose of life, I think, is revealed in the Lord's Prayer. We've been making our way through the Lord's Prayer for the last couple of weeks. We know it because we've recited it in school assemblies ad nauseum. It's head teachers favourite thing to get us to participate in those weekly or daily rituals. But as we've been walking our way through it, I hope that we've seen how Jesus is using it to invite us into the world as it really is. That we can't pray the Lord's Prayer and cling on to the lies, the false pictures of the world that we so often have. We have to see the world through his eyes. For example, when Jesus says, we should pray our Father in heaven. We can't pray that and carry on thinking that God is distant, uninterested, uninvolved. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your name be honoured above all others. We can't pray that and carry on living, spending our energy, our time, our enthusiasm, building up our own reputation. When Jesus says that we're supposed to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We can't pray that and carry on living as if we're in charge. What we say goes. And when Jesus teaches us to pray for all those things on earth as it is in heaven, we can't carry on living life at either end of those extremes. Thinking that this life is the ultimate or that life doesn't start until we get to heaven. I wonder if that whole phrase actually confuses you. On earth as in heaven. Like, what does that mean? For so many of us, our picture, our view of heaven is more likely taken from comic books, cartoons, than it is from the Bible. By that I mean we've watched an episode of The Simpsons or something like that where heaven is pictured and described as a place spiritual place, a floaty in the cloud sort of place that we escape to at the end of our lives to be greeted by a bearded God. Do you know in the Bible that isn't really what heaven is? Heaven is, yes, a spiritual place, but really the only difference between heaven and earth in the Bible is that heaven is truly God's place in the same sense, in the same way that the earth 
is our place. Heaven is God's space, earth is our space, and more often than you'd think, the two do actually go together. Jesus' prayer on earth, as in heaven, isn't really that out of the blue. I'm going to take us through a couple of instances in the Bible where this heaven on earth is a reality. And I think it will help us to see that the whole purpose and the point of life, what God is doing through Jesus and in Jesus and in each and every one of our lives now, is very much about on earth, in our lives, as in heaven. We start at the beginning. Genesis chapters 1, chapters 2, the template, the design, the purpose of everything that was made. And we see that actually things were created in the beginning for God's space and our space to be one and the same space. We read about God making people in his image and putting them in a garden called Eden. And that God is there with them, in the midst of them. They enjoy life. They enjoy his company, his glory, his presence. More than that, what's described in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's plan for humanity to spread his presence, to spread his glory, to take this overlap that exists in Eden and to go global with it. If you like, human beings are made with the purpose of living to spread God's image around the entire world. My guess is you know what happens next in the story. They don't do that. Instead of taking God's glory with them, they try to rob God of his glory. And the consequences are severe. Instead of taking his presence, they're shut out from his presence. And being shut out from his presence, they start to experience life on earth quite unlike what it is in heaven. Instead of it being a full and fruitful and joyous life, it's a life that is marked off by death, disease, disappointment and despair. But the story doesn't end there. That first example of heaven and earth coming together in the, in the beginning, God's plan of using people to fill the cosmos with his glory, it isn't derailed at this point. No, in seed form, even in the garden, there is hope. There is a promise that God is going to put things right, that God is going to fix it all. And really, that could be how you explain the entire rest of the Bible. God's unfolding plan to put right what went wrong right at the start. To make it, as Jesus instructed us to pray, on earth as it is in heaven. There are a couple of other places where that reality is felt and experienced, but they're muddled experiences at best. They come in the form of the tabernacle, as Israel is wandering through the wilderness, and the temple, and they finally entered into the land. In both of those places, in both of those structures, God's presence is said to be there with the people. Actually, if you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, you can read about the dedication of the temple, of how fire comes down from heaven, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. God's there. He's with them. It's heaven on earth. Only there's a problem. It says that the priests can't enter in. 
when God really shows up, people cannot exist in that same space because of our rejection, because of our rebellion. There's this twin thing going on of a reminder of this is how it's supposed to be, God with us, but of how we can't enter into that. We're cut off, we're separated. Things get really exciting when we get to the New Testament and when we get to the, the birth of a certain child, uh, a human who embodied on earth as it is in heaven, walking it, talking it, living it, breathing it. You, of course, know this baby's name. It's, it's Jesus. It's God made flesh. Do you know in John chapter 2, Jesus even speaks about himself in terms of the temple. Jesus describes um, a situation where this temple can be destroyed and I will rebuild it in three days. The people around don't understand what he's on about. They say it took 46 years for us to build this temple and you're suggesting that you're going to rebuild it in three days? John clarifies that when Jesus said that, he was speaking about his own body. You see, Jesus is where God came to dwell on earth in flesh for a purpose, for a point. Jesus came to take that separation away, to begin to reverse the effects of the rebellion right at the start. Adam, Eve, humanity were cut off from the presence of God. But in Jesus, that cutting off is being undone, even in his own body as he physically was cut off unto death. The tabernacle and the temple, the people could only get so close to God, but they were separated from him. Through Jesus' life and death, the Bible teaches us, we can come into God's presence. We can know God. We can live with God on earth as in heaven. Which is why the next place that this earth meets heaven reality is described in the Bible is actually in people like you and me. It's in the early church. It's in all the church. In Acts chapter 2, they're praying. Jesus has taken his humanity up into heaven and something special happens. The Holy Spirit comes and fills the believers, fills those who have put their trust in Jesus, who follow him. And there's this little symbol, this sign of a fire that rests upon their heads. It's reminiscent of the fire and the clouds from the tabernacle. It's reminiscent of the fire coming on the temple. It's a sign, it's a symbol that God's presence, God's dwelling, God's space and our space are overlapping once more. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they both pick up on this language, this idea, this reality. That now for those who follow Jesus... God lives with us. But probably where we want to get to, what we really want to see and to understand is where all this is heading, of how God's original plan and purpose is being put into effect. And the promise that he made, even after the fall in the garden, what it would end up looking like. We get that in Revelation, the final book in the Bible. And it's a book, to be fair, that has caused quite a lot of controversy, quite a lot of conflict in the church. Mainly because when we read it, we don't understand what it means by heaven, what it means by eternal realities and so on. But there are portions of it that are crystal clear. Portions like Revelation 21. Let me read to you for a second. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw also the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That sounds like it, doesn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Do you see it? That the final scenes aren't of us escaping this world. Be that with disappointment because the best has gone or with a sudden relief because at last we can begin to live. The final scene, the final picture is of heaven and earth coming together, of God dwelling amongst his people, of his glory filling the entire cosmos, of the effects of the fall and rebellion being undone, of life being restored to the way it's supposed to be experienced. When Jesus taught his disciples, when he teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, he's speaking about the hope of the entire Bible. The hope of the entire Bible, which isn't, this is as good as it gets, or one day it it might get better. The hope of the entire Bible is this, that God cares about our world, God cares about our lives as much now, today, as into eternity. That God can see what this world is supposed to be like, what this world can be like, and he is willing to do what is necessary to make it that way. Do you know, we can, we can see, we can imagine potential in this world that isn't realised yet. We can see the world will be better without global warming, without plastics polluting the sea, without droughts devastating communities. We can see all of that. Imagine then what God sees in terms of life and experience of living in his world. He, he, he has so much more planned for it than we could ever imagine. Can I just highlight a difference between God and us? Not just in his greater expectations of what that can be, but his willingness to do what is necessary to achieve it. Now, we've gotten used to recently not having plastic bags at the checkout in supermarkets. But goodness me, didn't we complain when they were taken away? Even something small like that, a tiny step from each one of us, in order to make the world a better place apparently, and we mourn and we fight and we push back against it. In Jesus, though, God not only saw what could be, but has done what is necessary to make this future a reality. Jesus has come the first time to get the ball rolling, to make it so that you and I can be a part of this future, but more than that, to make that future a reality for now by the Holy Spirit coming to live in us. Jesus is coming again, finally, to make this our experience day by day by day into eternity. God is far more committed to this plan than any of us are because it's his plan. What is life all about? It's not about simply making the most of the short time that we have here. It's not about escaping the physical so that we can get onto something better and spiritual. No, no, those are nonsense. The hope of the Bible, the purpose of life, 
is that we would be living with God. That we would get to live in a way that we were created to live. That we would get to experience life as it is and can be when it is lived with him. That is why Jesus came. Jesus came to live, to show what life could be like. He came to die in order to begin to reverse the effects of our sin, to defeat death, to conquer the powers that ensnare us and make us so that we are always living in different, destructive, hurtful, harmful ways. He came to make it so that that separation and that barrier that stopped the priests from entering into the temple that stopped the people from going into the holiest places in the tabernacle, that stopped Adam and Eve carrying on living in Eden, he came to take that barrier away so that we can, with hope-filled eyes, look forward, not just to tomorrow or the day after, lived with God now, but an eternity, a glorious eternity with him, where death is defeated, where tears are done away with, where sin and hurt and suffering is no more. You cannot pray on earth as it is in heaven and think that earth is already as good as it gets. You cannot pray on earth as it is in heaven when really in the back of your mind you can't wait to get away from the earth and disappear somewhere else. No, you've got to see the world as Jesus sees it. You've got to see the purpose of the cosmos as Jesus sees it. As a created place where God wants to be known. Where God wants to be experienced. Where God wants to be enjoyed by everything that he has made. That's the picture of life that captured Jesus' vision. That's the picture of and the potential of life that Jesus saw and that he carried even to the cross. That's what Jesus is encouraging us to pursue now, even today. To not make an ultimate thing of this world, but also not to dismiss this world altogether. Instead, to live in it now as people who are anticipating something more. To be a people who are getting on with experiencing that even more now. How do we experience it? Well, we pray for his name to be honoured on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just ask, we start living those things out. You know, Jesus gave a really clear example or a really articulate definition of what this is. He said it looked like loving God with everything that we have and loving our neighbours as ourselves. When we pray on earth as it is in heaven, let me tell you this. We are telling God that we want to love him with everything and to love our neighbours as ourselves. We are telling God, we are telling each other, we are telling ourselves that we want Jesus to hurry up and to come and to make that um, earth um, and heaven overlap, that God space and our space overlap a reality more and more as soon as possible. But we're also saying that we want to be a part of making that reality come true right now. We don't have to wait for that. We get to be a part of it in Jesus' glorious name. Let's pray together and then worship a little bit more. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for how he came in order to take away the barriers 
so that we could know you in a way that we couldn't know you before. We thank you that he's encouraged us to look at life now as something that can be the start of our eternal lives. And we pray, Lord God, we pray for the day when he will come back and we will know you. We will see you face to face and we will enjoy you throughout your entire creation. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.